Escape from Plan A. Welcome listeners, this is another episode of Escape from Plan A. I'm your host Oxford and I'm here with Diana and this... Hey, what's up Diana? Sup? She's right beside me. Uh, this is one of those special episodes where everyone's in the same room. And an extra special episode because today we have Red Canary Song. Uh, we're so excited to have you here. So uh, I want to introduce you guys first. Um, so Kate. Hey, uh, I'm Kate. Kate Zen. I'm one of the co-founders of Red Canary Song. And we're super honored to be here today with Plan A. So thank you so much for the invite. Um, we also have... Uh, uh, my name is Gia. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a volunteer, a recent add-on, I guess, to Red Canary Song. Thanks for having us. Hi, Gia. And lastly, we have Lillian. Hey, Lillian. Hi, Lillian. Uh, that's me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Sorry. I've never been on a podcast before. Well, but, you're doing um, great. Yeah, I'm going by Lillian for this podcast, but I'm part of Red Canary, also a new member. Um, thanks for having us here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So um, I think some of our listeners probably know of Red Canary Song because, you know, if you check out our Twitter, we, uh, you know, we retweet a lot of stuff you do and everything. But for those who might not know, why, why don't, uh, Kate, why don't you tell us about what Red Canary Song is? Okay, uh, Red Canary Song was formed um, around the death of Song Yang, who was a massage parlor worker on 40th Road in Flushing. Um, she passed away in November of 2017. And uh, in organizing her second vigil last year, um, we uh, built a really strong relationship, or I built a really strong relationship with her brother and her mother and uh, tried to introduce him to different Asian American organizations that could maybe offer support in their legal case. And uh, in planning the next vigil, wanted to involve more and more like Asian American organizations and uh, wanted to try to involve other migrant massage workers who had worked with Song Yang. So we tried to have those conversations and uh, from talking to more people and also from some previous um, knowledge of this area, uh, we just found that like there is so much um, police abuse and, and a lot of really like wrongdoing that people are suffering on 40th Road. And so um, Red Canary was formed from a vision uh, by Athena Guan, who uh, was a massage worker uh, for like over 20 years and uh, wanted to see like a labor union or something that could be formed um, of migrant massage workers. So we thought maybe we can try to support that. Like um, there's no resources really for it. There's not really like um, it doesn't really fit into the labor model yet. Um, but maybe we could like begin trying to organizing people and like making more connections with other organizations and so this first year red canary song has a lot about been about setting the playing field in the discourse um finding allies uh creating some infrastructure for meeting and um little by little sort of base building towards this vision that we hope that we can achieve in the future right and i think it was about a month ago a teen mark and i we went to a meeting that was hosted by red canary song ron kim was there Julia Salazar and other people. So that's where I first met Kate. And so that was that was a very uh, good occasion. Before we get started, I, I want our listeners to get to know you as uh, people a little bit more before we start talking about the topics we're going to start talking about. So uh, Gia, why don't we start with you? Just tell us a bit about yourself, uh, where you come from, etc. Um, I 
was born and raised in Hawaii, uh, the island of Oahu, and I moved to New York by way of the Bay Area. I have some family out there. Um, and I've been living in New York for about eight years collectively. I moved back and forth between the Bay and here a lot, like trying to um, not get displaced. It's always it's ho- so hard to go back to the Bay Area. Now it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I'm a performer. I do a lot of performances based off of um, my experience as a dominatrix, as a more more so former. The more I've become a performer, it's more of like archiving things I've done privately as a pro dom. Um, and I'm a visual artist. So I do a lot of textile work. And that's what I do mostly now. I like to say or think that I'm not fully done with all mediums. I'd like to paint mm-hmm. one day, but that's, that's what I'm up to now. Uh, I admire your tattoos. Uh, when did you first start getting them? <laughs> well, um, my first tattoo was when I was 19. I'm 30 now. Um, and then I kind of get them in clusters. And I spent, I got a lot. I dated a tattoo artist. Um, so I got them a lot then. And then <laughs> Free tattoos. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, like, yeah. <laughs> but um, do you like um, look at some of them and like think of that person? Or Yeah, I do. And it's yeah. okay. It's okay. nothing that it's, it's, um, painful or anything for me to remember yeah um and then i worked as a shop assistant so i assisted like seven different artists and and when you're a shop assistant you get a lot of free tattoos and um but i just got licensed recently to be a piercer but i actually got uh the license to be to kind of like legitimize my pro dom practice as a piercer because i do a lot of play piercing as a pro dom but uh what you do is when you get a piercing license in new york city is you also get to be a certified tattoo artist but I mean, being in the tattoo industry, you have to, like, apprentice, you have to draw all the time, you have to, like, dedicate a lot of time. So I wouldn't consider myself a tattoo artist, but people think I am just because of how covered in tattoos I am. Right. I have a question about being a tattoo artist, because when you first start out, like, who are your first... Like, do, do your friends, like, kind of offer to be your first things? Like, how does that work? I think everybody's different. The way that I plan on going about it is, like, I'll probably put on my social media, like... I am doing free sessions for people. These are, and I'm like full disclosure, these are my first tattoos. So like um, maybe I'll even choose designs that don't have perfect lines or something. (laughs) Um, But that's, I think some folks do it differently. I think if you apprentice, you you have to bring in your own clients to your shops that you apprentice at. So, yeah. Oh, very Oxford, interesting. are you in the market? Because you have yeah, some cool ones. No, I like. Uh, no, I, I got in too much trouble with my mom. So. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I had to promise not to get any more. Uh, for now, we we shall All see. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty taboo in Korean. You're Korean, right? Yes. Yeah, so am I. Um, that is my mom hates it. She calls yeah. me a gangbae all the time. Uh, like that means gangster. gangster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Lillian, why, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, I was born and raised in L.A., not downtown, but towards the east side. Uh, my parents are musicians. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I thought about, I thought about, you know, after high school doing different things, but I ended up going into the arts. It was sort of a tangential kind of experience, expression mode, um, but school was really hard for me, so I kept dropping out and going back. And it took me 13 years to do the college thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I'll i make work in different ways, different forms. It's just the reflex of moving through life in some ways. Um, 
Yeah, I saw you were making those uh, wire flowers. They're beautiful. Oh, thank you. I I used to make these on the train on the way to work when I worked in clubs, and then this was an alternative product I could sell in the clubs. Oh, you don't want to dance, you want a flower? <laughs> it lasts a lot longer. <laughs> oh, that's so clever. Yeah, you got your own merch and everything. <laughs> I also had these wire balls, yeah. They're like limited edition, dude, because I stopped making those. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I worked as a dancer in clubs from age 21 to 29-ish, so most of my 20s. Uh, that was, I would say that was my main form of income. And it also allowed freedom in my artwork, like to avoid branding or commercializing what I was doing creatively. Uh, but it also had its, you know, there were difficulties with that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I started in Providence and was working in Baltimore. I worked in Florida a little bit. And a week in West Virginia. That was weird. And then, <laughs> oh, West Virginia. Yeah, and then, How'd you get there? Uh, there was an agency for dancers that I thought I would try. Huh. And they said they would send you out to clubs that needed you across the country. But then they send you out into the middle of the hills <laughs> in West Virginia. Oh, that's like, like what they do North for Dakota. doctors. They're like, oh, like, well... You know, uh, forgive your loans if you go into the middle uh, of nowhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I worked in uh, New York a little bit. I worked in three clubs in Manhattan, but I've I've stopped in the past uh, two or three years. I've been putting effort into you know developing my artwork in different ways. Or um, lately, uh, m- more the income part, like for survival, I've been working as a assistant um for an independent contracting ice cream oh. cake maker wow oh, delicious I'm an ice, ice cream cake <laughs> assistant cool oh that's very cool and uh kate why don't you tell us a bit about yourself uh yeah i usually like put my activist face on and don't talk as much about like my personal work but um yeah i've been doing um different kinds of sex work, I guess, uh, since I was, like, a teenager um, and left home, like, pretty early, um, but also was, like, quite stable (laughs) while I did that. So, like, I was still going to classes and um, I was, like, helping to run a nonprofit that was, like, a youth-run nonprofit at the time called Chinatown Youth Initiative. So I was, like, not at home, but also, like, felt like a fully empowered adult. So it wasn't really, like, a a traumatic experience so much. In fact, I think um, sex work was quite instrumental in making me feel like quite in control of my life and able to um, afford a lot of things and be really stable and do well in school. So, um, but yeah, I, I definitely, you know, know those days from the movie Hustlers. Um, I remember working as a dancer uh, right before and after the financial crisis um, in clubs as well as in like lap dance parties. Um, there's one that got a lot of traction and got shut down as well, right? Right around the, the financial crisis, um, Hot Lab Dance Club. Um, I think it still exists and has changed its name in different ways. And, you know, um, that kind of mentality of like organizing these like little underground parties where certain select lists of like Wall Street lawyers and doctors will, you know, those are the people that would show up and um, it would be like kind of away from the public a little bit. And those were kind of the spaces that would also felt a little safer for me because I was afraid of being too public and I always maintained like a very strict line between my like my professional life, my student life, and like the stuff that I did on the side to like 
like have financial security <laughs> and so it's actually like only recently that that those two things have like collided and my identities have started kind of melding together so I'm still adjusting to that process and like even though I've been an activist for like over a decade like I feel like I'm only just beginning to come out as you know like as a full person so yeah oh, that's great that's so awesome to you know have like the different sides of your um identity coalesce into like a more full version of yourself i mean i feel like that's kind of what we talk about endlessly on the pod you know and just like what we're what we're struggling yeah hell sometimes yeah. i have like college friends come on the pod and oh my god world's colliding you know? yeah <laughs> Uh, but, uh, Kate, you brought up Hustlers, and that is what we want to uh, ground our our podcast on, because I, uh, I think we've all seen the movie. It's, it's a good movie, uh, entertaining, uh, and it does raise a lot of issues um, in, in both good and bad ways that we can now talk about. So you had, uh, so Red Canary Song went to see it as a group, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So what, what did you all think of the movie? Um, a little bit like what you said before. It's a good, like air quotes, good movie. Like it has the perfect formula for being entertaining and funny and um, kind of like on your toes and dramatic. And uh, I remember one of the members of Red Canary or like people that at least support us uh, said like, it made me laugh. It made me cry. It made me uh, think of my mom <laughs> and like um, a great movie, like, you know, 10 out of 10. And then we all started discussing and they're like, oh, you know. Actually, you're right. Like, was I just, they were kind of just like, was I like just manipulated into believing that it was good? But, um, like, on a very surface level, it was good. Yeah. I mean, our bar is so low when it comes to representation. Yeah. Right. What's yeah. like the last mainstream, like, portrayal about sex workers yeah. in general? I, my first thought was Pretty Woman. Right. That was what, yeah. like, eight, it wasn't yeah. the 80s, was it? Maybe early 90s? That, that was a long time ago. 1989 or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I was born 19. Well, I did not dancers. watch that. <laughs> Do you know any other? Was Flash Dancers before that? Oh, Flash. No, that was definitely 80s. I think that was definitely that was uh, older. Remember? Oh, there was one with um the the boxer. Mm-hmm. Boxer. A few years ago, yeah, he fell in love with a stripper who. Uh. uh, uh boxer. Boxer. Was Russell Crowe or? It wasn't uh, um. Creed was it? Wait. Oh wait, was it? Uh, I didn't watch it. With Mickey Rourke, maybe. Wasn't he a wrestler? Oh, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> maybe does he fall in love sure. with a stripper? Does yeah. he fall in love with a stripper? I think they're friends at first. Okay, but it, it was about the boxer. Then it wasn't like mm. about the. Oh right, right. The woman. Yes. Okay. What about Showgirls? Was oh, Elizabeth no, that's Berkley. like over. That's like eight. I'm pretty sure that's eighty. No, wait, no. that might be nineties. I'm not. That sure. was after Saved by the Bell. Right, but, but I, I think that we a good, you know, good yeah. movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's but all of, all of those examples they were all like white led oh too, yeah totally. right yeah. so maybe it was the first portrayal of um poc uh represented like starred sex worker stories it's right. also one of the rare uh movies that have an asian american female lead right yeah. which i was like trying to think i can't count more than 10 11 but two came out this year, right? And it not, yeah, and it not being about her just being Asian, like mm-hmm. that yeah. it wasn't like this is an Asian perspective right. of motherhood or something. It was yeah. all right. So yeah. let's start about the things you liked then. Like, what did you like about the movie uh, from from like based on your experiences? Uh, that, what what did the movie get right? I mean, it, it was very nostalgic. Like, I could like feel the like perfume and cigarette smell. You know, just like going there, you know, like oh, I know this. You know, there is definitely elements of it that feel super familiar, and that was nice. Yeah. Victoria's well, Secret and baby wipes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, love spell was that a smell that was nostalgic for y'all from Victoria's Secret? 
No. Oh, what I was, I, I had you know a lot what? of that in college. Let's like know. me and my yeah, me and my um roommates we like got like bottles and bottles yeah i think it's like a quick when you don't have time to take a shower but i mean i I wasn't i wasn't a stripper so i don't know but then that smell also like permeated through dungeons and i also was a massage worker massage workers always smell massage spaces smell like candles Right. Yeah. yeah. So, that makes sense. Yeah. Wait, so that, that Victoria's Secret perfume, was that kind of the standard best selling perfume of that era? I don't know. There's a lot. Yeah, I think uh, I used a. I, don't know. <laughs> I, I bet if I lotion. smell them, like, oh, this this smells like, like a, yeah. a party. Yeah. This is a- it's <laughs> very. No, 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 I don't go to strip clubs. <laughs> it smells like. Um, I don't know, candy kind of like fruit yeah. candy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, the house ones there. will carry it, so if you forget, you can just use. It's it. true. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That. So yeah. they got the kind of aesthetic, correct? Yeah, it, many parts, like yeah. a lot of it. The first fifteen minutes, I felt like were really. Oh yeah. Oh, the four a.m., five a.m. train ride. The sun's mm-hmm. coming up. Your clock goes off at three p.m. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I re- I also really liked the the Usher cameo, and I know a lot of oh, other oh, people yeah. loved it, and I th- I thought that was really very did. spot on, very yeah. like yeah. 2008. Uh, <laughs> that was that was my favorite part of the entire film was when Usher came yeah. and, and uh, watched dancers to his own song. Was that what happened? Yeah, <laughs> Love in the Club Part yeah. One. Right. Was that is that something that for the dancers in this in this room has that ever happened? Like a famous person come to like a club? Celebrity? Yeah. Like yeah. Cool. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Wait, so who's the most famous person that you saw come into your club? Uh, the first day I worked at Sapphire's, should I say this? <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's fine. Go for yeah. it. They, they said Rob Kardashian was taking uh, 11 girls into a room. Whoa, that spoiled. Like, oh, that's my first yeah, time. a lot of times like famous people will come but like hide away, like almost right away. So they'll like have a you know back room somewhere. There's a lot of like athletes that, yeah. you know. Um, but, like, you don't actually see them. But, mm-hmm. like, you know they're there. People t- whisper about them being there. And suddenly it's, like, the staff is, like, a third short, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, cool. I think Dungeon Spaces, it was always just, like, not famous, celebrity famous. Like, on TV and movies, it was, like, a doctor's in the room. And all the people who are, like, have medical fetish stuff was, like, I'm, I'm me next. Like, I have to meet this one. Wait, wait, wait. A medical fetish? What, what does that mean? Uh, so there's, like, medical play. Uh, oh. I guess I fall into that, too, because I do a lot of needlework um, where you, like, reenact things that you would do at, at a doctor's office or at a dentist's office and stuff like that. But, yeah, whenever um, the manager would say, like, blank surgeon is coming into the studio today and he wants to be here all day then like all the people who had like blood fetish stuff like really get turned on my blood or something like that would like flock i know i I, like love blood play so um, (laughs) i was always like oh my god i can't wait like that's i mean maybe the equivalent to like a strip club that's our famous people is like doctors Okay, uh, so if there's no more good stuff, what's like maybe this is the more fun part. I mean, part. I do still. Want, I don't want to be like only critical. I think I want to appreciate the fact that it was like written by women. Yeah, that like they intentionally like consulted with sex workers. You know, that they right. did go through a process in which they tried to be respectful. That's true. Um, and so I like want to see more movies like it. I we want to like you know push that line, of course, because things can always be better. But we also want to give props to you know people for trying and like it's a complex story and i think in a lot of ways it, they got a lot right so yeah a lot before, could yeah. have gone wrong yeah. um but yeah yeah i think most people that i talked to were like 
uh, who are, you know, like not involved in sex work were like, oh, like we were pleasantly surprised by this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It was well made. I mean, it was visually, it was fun and it happened so fast, you know, kind of thrilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to admit, Jennifer Lopez looked great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> god! No, I swear, she, 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 she looks no, exactly like, the same. Yeah. Okay, she was yeah. like my like one of my like childhood crushes growing up. So, I swear, uh-huh. she like looked better in this movie than in like Out of Sight. Even like, dude, where, yeah. <laughs> did you see that? Like, she wore the same like a uh, the same dress that you oh, know, yeah, she the, got uh, in trouble. Yeah, for? the Grammys. I think that yeah. was the 1998 oh, Grammys. Wow. Or something. Yeah, oh, like 20 years have passed. She looks better now. Oh. Like it's unreal. Although, also, but we shouldn't like hold that standard for everyone because obviously she's like has every right you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> nutritionist in hollywood helping her out and stuff but uh you know let's give her props yeah. all right now more i guess to the fun part uh what what did you not like about the movie what did, what did it get wrong <laughs> mm-hmm. well w- one thing is that it still didn't really ex- like it wasn't really a movie about sex workers or sex work um it was a movie that you know in fact like kind of threw extra shame on the women who did do like sex work or you know in in the rooms and even like the real life um like rosie and the real life, uh, I forget suddenly for her name. And um, oh, I was, um, I was just uh, one sec. Samantha. Samantha. Fox? Samantha. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. no, it was like Sandra. <laughs> or it started Samantha. with an S, and I think her last name started with a B. With I'll, a B I'll look B it up. Well, I'll just look yeah, it up. Yeah, maybe then. we can cut this part. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like in real life, like they, you know, deny, you know, even being sex workers, and um, there's still a lot of shame put on it. And it's as if like doing, you know, thievery con artistry and like you know like drugging people is like more noble than sex work and more Mm. acceptable and like Mm. that degree of like positioning things is like not actually helpful for Mm. lifting the you know the stigma attached to sex work in fact it just puts sex work even lower down on a hierarchy of like you know of respectability um yeah, I don't know if you have- yeah, and I also heard I should I should have done a little bit more research to this prior to coming in here today, but that the movie was based off of an article, or the writer wrote it off of an article that she read. So it wasn't even though they brought real sex workers on set during the filming of the movie uh, for authenticity reasons, um, the writing of the movie wasn't coming from an authentic point of view, um, more like spectatorness, and also like what you said, it was. It kind of more so perpetuated stigma than than like how can somebody lift stigma if they're not even like from that group that demographic right. that they're representing? So, um, the writer did a good job writing, but I wish she even got like a script consultant or somebody mm-hmm. an actual sex worker to write the mm-hmm. movie. Um, yeah, it was it was more it was just entertaining for me. It wasn't authentic at all. Right, I got the name Samantha so Barbash. So oh, Barbash. Yeah. 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 So the Samantha, you got right. Yeah, okay. um, right. Uh, and and Kate, ha- you wrote an article for NBC News. Yeah. We'll provide the link in our show notes for those who want to read it. That it, it um, touches on all these points. But yeah, that, that part about uh, shaming sex workers. The part that really stood out to me when I was watching it is like, uh, so the the financial crisis happens, and all these. Uh, strip clubs are, are empty because all the, the bankers and lawyers and, and whatever people aren't coming as much anymore. And then there's this part where I think uh, somebody's like telling the Constance Wu character or something like, oh, you know what, um, you like you're not getting your money because like the, these like Russian hookers are yeah. selling like blowjobs for like 200 bucks. Yeah, and, it, it did, ma- it was... and I was like, wait a minute. So mm-hmm. so is Constance Wu and her like click better than these women because mm-hmm. they're not like they're like, you know, so-called only stripping. They're not 
degrading themselves by actually doing more sexual right. things. It's like, wait a minute, is that the message that that you want to send? It's like mm-hmm. it, it's a little iffy there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not not only that, you know, the sort of extra shame that people are putting on Russian strippers. Right, right. Oh, those like Russians. Not, yeah. <laughs> not yeah. at all like appropriate. Um, and also, people were doing that shit before. Uh, people were doing that before no, the financial say, like, crisis. Uh, yeah, we talked about this on the know? call. You can say, oh, you can yeah. say whatever you want. We okay, got no okay. corporate sponsors. No yeah. one's gonna. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people were saying like that stuff was always going on. Maybe a few more people now felt like, oh, they should do it too, you know. But like, even to like cast shame and to say that like, oh, like people weren't doing like extras in the back rooms before the financial crisis is just completely false yeah know? that's like the pretty like, woman fantasy right where julia roberts is a prostitute that doesn't really sleep with her clients or something yeah. i don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like this ridiculous mm-hmm. thing um yeah because in the kate in your article you talk about that like madonna horror complex that because mm-hmm. like the movie still s- seems to say uh oh you know these women are strippers but they're okay because like they're, they're doing it for their families or they're looking after mm-hmm. their kids what if they were just doing it to make money right what's what's wrong with that right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um uh yeah, I think I mentioned before, but it's it's also like I I also didn't really expect Hollywood to do something like um I don't more than what I just what I had what I saw because when was the last time Hollywood per- made honest portrayals to s- serve any kind of community yeah, no. besides their private interests. <laughs> right. right. Hollywood is the entertainment and entertainment branch of the military industrial complex and all and and all all media like storytelling art forms are spell work you know it's the the dreams of the zeitgeists or but and but who is controlling hollywood right where is the money coming from so it's like um if we look at the movie from that perspective it's like of course they would have the police come in and do this and then the sex workers are this thing or and we also mentioned that the director is someone who made superhero movies before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, this is sort of like the like Ocean's a very eleven. Sim- yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very similar structure and feel, but just put strippers in. Yeah, and so you can sort of like celebrate um, that aesthetic, maybe. Uh, so, are you kind of saying that? They they chose to do a movie about strippers to pretend to be, you know, empowering women and women of color, but really it's kind of for the gratuitous nudity? Um, mm. Yeah, partially in some ways. And yeah, that will sell uh, enough tickets to pay Jennifer Lopez's salary, like whatever she got. <laughs> yeah, and, or, and Constance Wu and... Um, Actually, there was like no nudity of Constance Wu. Like, there wasn't very much mm-hmm. gratuitous nudity. Actually, I th- I really went in thinking there would be more, you know, but it was actually like pretty mm-hmm. tame. Or what was it rated? I assume it was rated R, but was it even rated like PG thirteen? Well, let me check. All right, mm-hmm. yeah, because I'm is. trying to think. I would say it's rated R. Probably if they're, like drugging people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Huh. Um. But yeah, that was one issue that. You also raised uh, about the police thing, about how they they were seen cooperating, and that does not jive with what actually happens on the streets. Right. Uh, so could you talk more about that? Um, I guess, yeah, I, I want to talk about it in like two or three different ways, just specifically about like 
Asian American or Asian participation with the police and how that relates to the model minority or not, like that perpetuating that or not. Um, pressure from the police. That's another uh, topic I want to talk about. And just like sex workers and the police and how that's a really complicated topic. Um, and this movie displayed all of those in like one or a couple scenes that upset me in particular. And I have never, like on a personal note, I have never been um, harassed by the police while at work as a sex worker. I have so many different jobs, but um, as as a sex worker, I, I like, thankfully, I've never been harassed by the police. But on the street, as just like a civilian, I get harassed by the police all the time. Oh, yeah? Like yeah. how? Yeah, yeah. Like targeted for, for at train stations or um, I grew up in Hawaii again, and it's a very, very conservative police state. Uh, targeted from walking down the street of just looking like I'm selling drugs or something. I'm, again, I'm like heavily tattooed for, you know, people can't see what I look like, but um, I'm, I don't know if I'm visibly queer, but like around pride, I noticed that I get harassed by police a lot. Really? So I usually just stay indoors during pride month. Oh no. What do you mean by harass? Like what, what specifically do they say or do? Um, I, well, I do, I'm not like an angel on earth, but I like hop the train st- <laughs> turnstile <laughs> a lot and I always get targeted from cops. Um, and when other folks are passing and then like for some reason cops like always ask me for my phone number but won't ask everybody else and I, I talk to other sex workers about that and they're like oh you know they're gonna harass you and they're just like keeping tabs on you and like stuff like that it makes me really paranoid and like I just I don't know I just can't help it's because of the way I maybe appear and I'm not usually super compliant like I don't even talk to them when they're asking me stuff because I have the right to remain silent and um I don't know. Like I, in my artwork too, I make a lot of like anti-cop uh, visual art stuff. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I just don't agree that uh, that it's like. I, I just, I, I also have like arrest history in my family. So when I grew up in Hawaii, I would be excluded from spaces because of my last name. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was. In Hawaii, they can keep track of me because it's small. So I I moved to New York, so it's different. But I'm just saying, like, that kind of carried with me. So when I saw it in the movie, uh, seeing that happen, like, Asian-American participation in police is, like, a good thing and can, like, help you get through your hardships was, like, really freaking upsetting for me to see because it didn't work out that way for my family. It doesn't work out that way for me. And it doesn't work out that way for so many, like, migrant massage workers who are caught up in Mm -hmm. policing and arrests and end up, like, deported rather than actually helped or, like, you know, whether it's transitioning to a different situation if they choose to or just, like, you know, not being sexually assaulted or robbed from cops (laughs) by cops. Like, these, you know, actual interactions between Asian American and Asian sex workers and police have not always been so – I guess, helpful. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's what happened to Song Yang. Right. Mm. Yeah. I'll say, oh, sorry, two other instances where I always get targeted. TSA, I always get targeted at TSA. And I always get targeted um, when I'm driving. When I'm not in New York and I'm driving, I always get pulled over randomly. Oh, and at this wow. Point, yeah. I oh, At this point, I just, like, no. Put my hands on the dash. I'm my ID ready. Like, it's. I'm so used to it. I have to, like, like put it a part of my day i also yeah. like try have tried to play the whole like well i'm like young i'm still a college student and i'm not anymore, <laughs> and i haven't been in school in a really long time but i've used that to my advantage before of like um 
I've, I've always been like, oh, I'm, I'm really stressed out. Like it's midterms times. Like I don't know. This is what I'm just doing to to mm-hmm. get by. Um, I've said that to clients before um, to help hopefully get more tips or something like that. Um, I don't know if that's. I'm a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite over here. Like <laughs> yeah, I'm playing like into the model minority in my exactly. clients. But when it comes to cops, like it's a fear-based thing or or I've never again I've never been involved in a raid but I've heard them like happening around and I'll just like pull out right away and I'll just like okay I'm going independent now or something but it's it's never safe really yeah I I mean it sounds like um the model minority myth at play right because it's like there's a certain you know like um way that like a Asian woman can present to be, you know, like to fit that good girl mold, just right. in the same way that, like, like certain, like especially East Asians who are like conducting themselves a certain way, they'll be like the model minority who the cops are friendly with, you know, right. which <laughs> but is then, problematic. But yeah, and yeah. then like so many people who are just like a little off in some way that just like signals that you're not one of the good ones, and I guess that's kind of what happens is happening in hustlers too it's like mm-hmm. um these the these strippers that are complying with the cops they're the good girls they're the model uh women of color sex mm-hmm. workers and everybody else is shit right and we should shame them but like these these girls you know j-lo and constance Wu, they're okay they're okay everyone else sucks <laughs> yeah yeah, and with, with the police thing, I went at the Red Canary Song meeting that I attended. Uh, decriminalization was a big topic. So, right. for those uh, listeners who are not as familiar with, uh, could you tell us more about what, what that what that issue is? Uh, yeah, so we are part of a broader coalition of over thirty organizations in the city called Decrim New York, and we participated in some actions like last year, um, leading up to the introduction of the Stop Violence in the Sex Trades Act, which is the first bill introduced in the state that uh, is proposing to decriminalize all aspects of the sex trade. Uh, so from purchasing um, to, you know, solicitation laws to the laws around buying um, and, you know, um, brothel keeping, all of those laws would be removed um, under this act. And so um, we are advocates for it uh, because there is a global movement of sex workers um, from which like Red Canary also kind of descended and got our, you know, our, our, our organizing strategies from, which all demand for a decriminalization of sex work as a strategy towards anti-trafficking and towards like dignity, equality, and labor rights for all workers in the sex trades. Um, And so Red Canary, you know, uh, I was an organizer in Toronto first, Butterfly, and um, learned from Eileen Lam, who had been an organizer for over 10 years in Hong Kong, working with sex workers there. And so a lot of our strategy comes like straight, you know, it's like inherently transnational and we don't, you know, we're borrowing from um, a bigger kind of rhetoric that transcends like borders (laughs) around like what people need when they cross borders, what people need um, in order to survive. Um, And so like our identity is like, you know, with like a more transnational sense of what an Asian sex worker is rather than the sort of U.S. centric idea of like binary of like, you know, immigrant, non-immigrant. You know, I think there's so many Asian sex workers impacted by the racism of the anti-trafficking movement and rhetoric, particularly the ones in Asia, for example, um, groups like Empower in Thailand and uh, Women's Network United in Cambodia and the Philippine Sex Workers Collective have talked about how like white-led American anti-trafficking like charities have gone into these countries, um, like provoking the arrest of people in Cambodia, putting people in what had 
once been Khmer Rouge like camps <laughs> and you know compelling people to be changed and a lot of these organizations are Christian they come through like a Bush era kind of you uh, know Bush that. administration yeah. sort of yeah like alongside PEPFAR which cut off all funding like worldwide for HIV AIDS related projects that like worked with sex workers and so like countries like Brazil had to reject that funding to be like, we have to keep working with sex workers. They're a huge part of the HIV AIDS, you know, like our, that's our target population. Um, but most other countries didn't. And so in some places, actually, HIV AIDS went up after the Bush administration changed its like laws, right? So the wow. sort of like religious agenda of like particular like administrations in recent history and the rise of the very, very recent anti-trafficking movement, you know, it's a really young movement. Sex worker rights is way older. <laughs> and like in places like Thailand, <laughs> And had achieved all of these labor gains by organizing as sex workers. And when this sort of imperialistic American white kind of movement came in, it actually like led to more policing. It basically dismantled all the labor organizing that Asian sex workers were doing. And it caused what we call trafficking. Mm. <laughs> and wow. so, you know, I think we have to sort of work with groups like that are already previously organized like Red Canary is very young but these Asian groups are much stronger much bigger they have much better organizing like in terms of like inter like national organizing there's a group APNSW that Eileen used to serve as while she was an organizer in Hong Kong that brought together like 13 different Asian countries and groups that all had really like well organized Asian sex worker like collectives the biggest ones are like in India where like for example in the Sanagachi district there's one collective that has over 600,000 sex workers. That's wow. DMSC. Mm -hmm. And they have their own cooperative bank that like helps like the youth get out of sex work. Like the, the, the degree of organizing in Asia is just so much more advanced than what we're doing here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so we try to learn from that and like plug into that with this understanding that like the identity of Asian sex worker isn't just migrant or not migrant. It's more of this diasporic identity under like, you know, all the different kind of historic trends of colonialism that have pushed people all over the world, right? So... Yeah. Oh, before we go on, uh, Diana, I think you had looked up something and, and you wanted to... Was, oh. Was it the rating of the movie? Yeah, it's rated R. Okay, yeah. <laughs> figured, yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, thanks for all that, Kate. I was yeah. very uh, I mean, eye-opening. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's something that we want to uh, talk more about is just, like, the global um, diaspora and, like, you know, our like global issues not just like um, asian american because it's like kind of like myopic to to look at what is happening here and try to do anything when like there's precedent and like other people doing much more advanced work that we can actually learn from if we just open you know right our perspective mm -hmm. a little more yeah so that's that's really cool I really hope that globally people aren't look, watching Hustlers and thinking this is a, a representation of <laughs> sex workers in America and what we do as organizing or like. What do you think their impression would be if they thought this was uh, like a documentary? I'm trying to think like what my family in Korea would think and they would probably be like, so silly. <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah. yeah. Like but it's like Cardi, Cardi B is open about having done that right mm -hmm. yeah it's become like a meme on twitter it's like people yeah. just kind of treat it as a joke oh. yeah so yeah. oh the the movie no no i mean like cardi b drugging uh people oh and it's wow. like yeah I, I love cardi b i'm sorry <laughs> oh i, I love like, her too yeah like i just hope that nothing ever ha bad happens to her i just like i wish there, i also wish more cardi b was in it. i wish more lizzo was in it i yeah. wish oh, that i feel that, like they yeah. were used for the trailer yeah to make it seem like <laughs> yeah pretty much it, yeah. it was more widely yeah representing. 
Kate, can I ask you, um, so you said, like, the Bush administration um, did a lot of, like, basically, like, um, anti-trafficking colonization work, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Um, How how much of that was related to the Asian financial crisis? Um, I don't know how it ties into the Asian financial crisis. I do know that it ties a lot into, like, 9-11 and anti-terrorism funding, okay. and it kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with, like, uh, increasing funding for the military. Mm-hmm. And so, like, uh, anti-trafficking is, like, a foreign – is an international relations tool, right? Um, yeah. The United States rates different countries with these tip reports to say, like, oh, you're good at this, you're not good at that, you're not following our agenda about this, you're doing that. And that becomes used as a leverage for negotiation and, like, you know, in trade policy and other types of policies. And so – it is a way of controlling other countries based on kind of like a moralistic agenda of what Americans think around sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it is inherently, it's actually an instrument of imperialism, right? Yeah. Um, and on top of that, like, if you look at uh, laws like the Justice for Victims of Trafficking Act of 2015, the bulk of the funding for these laws that are, like, passed with a sort of bipartisan kind of agreement around trafficking, um, the bulk of that funding goes not towards, like, creating jobs for people who want to release sex work, but actually creating jobs for police, right? It, it goes into, like, creating the Hero Corps, which is, like, for retired vets to, like, now go around, like, saving trafficking, like, victims, like, you know. And it goes towards authorizing certain measures, uh, like um, federal wiretapping with ICE and the Cyber Crimes Unit and ICE. So it allows – it's an immigration control. Mm-hmm. It funds surveillance and the military, right? Mm-hmm. And so – or the militarization of police. And so I think um, we have to sort of see, like – you know, how sex workers fall into this agenda as this sort of, like, very, like, easily pushed around, you know, like, group that, like, you know, American heroism can pretend to be saving Mm -hmm. so that you can give more funding to the police, to the military, right? Mm -hmm. And what's what's most anti-feminist about it is you have all these women, like, cheerleading on the sides, like, oh, my God, they're saving us. And these are these, like, white charities, these, like, really, really well-funded, you know, like, you know, feminist, quote-unquote, like, organizations that are, you know, like, basically kowtowing to police as, like, the, like, pretty princess in the picture, right? It's the least feminist thing ever because they're basically in bed with the people that actually are killing women. And so, um, and, you know, if you look at the, like, actual results of these arrests, like, very few of these arrests are actually going to result in something that can, uh, like, alleviate the lives of migrant sex workers or, like, youth sex workers that are caught in a bad, like, labor situation. Instead, it's, you know, even youth are usually, like, not given the actual services they need but put back into the bad situation that caused them to run away in the first place uh same with like with with migrant sex workers i mean a lot of people are deported but like the act of arresting people is like incredibly violent Mm -hmm. and this like bad data that has been kind of created around the sort of coercive measures of 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 looking for human trafficking has Mm -hmm. allowed for this you know wave of like mainstream kind of hype and funding that yeah. benefits mostly corporations and these big nonprofits where people are earning these like six figure salaries to do awareness raising, which mm-hmm. sounds like like a movie club for like <laughs> you know, for privileged people, you know? Yeah. And has nothing to do with actual services for people who need it. Right? What kind of corporations are benefiting? So you see a lot of, like, people using this as CSR. So there's, like, Hyatt chain, these, like, um, hotel chains that are using, like, oh, we fight trafficking and we put these posters up as a way of promoting themselves as being, like, good citizens in the world while not actually examining the problems with their own labor supply chains, Mm -hmm. Um, not examining, like, what's wrong with, like, the labor force. Like, they have literally people who are underpaid working for them who are in situations, like, that are closer to trafficking. And yet instead of talking about that, they're putting up a lot of, like, often 
racist, like signs of trafficking. Oh, someone might be trafficked if they look Asian, if they look like they might not speak the language, if they're shy and they don't look you in the eye. This was one of these like airport documents. Then they might be trafficked, right? And this like encourages people to like racially profile each other in these businesses. And meanwhile, they pay these like, you know, nonprofits that are doing these trainings a whole bunch of money. The police trade them a whole bunch of money. A whole bunch of money is being circulated around in this like bubble that is like built on heroism that is actually harmful. And Mm -hmm. so like we have to understand like why does that little mini economy exist and who does it actually serve? It doesn't Mm -hmm. serve sex workers, right? How like the whole hashtag rights not rescue kind of happens. So all these other folks are trying to quote unquote rescue Mm -hmm. workers, right? Or sex workers and... So Decrim and Y is doing things like they're trying to provide rights, not mm-hmm. not rescue services like all these other. Right. Yeah. So that comes from like uh, this term, like rescue industry that Laura Agustin wrote about, like in like late 90s, early 2000s. She did a lot of this is like before a lot of other people caught on to this. Like rescue industry is an extremely profitable industry. Mm-hmm. And so and they're, you know, one more group of people extracting off the backs of sex workers. Right. They are the pimps. <laughs> Right. <laughs> in a sense, in a very clear sense. And so, you know, being able to identify that and to, like, push back and say what's actually going to improve rights for everyone, like labor conditions, has got to be, like, treating sex workers' work and giving everybody equal dignity. The way you're doing this is empowering cops. It's not about empowering right. sex workers. It's, in fact, mm-hmm. demeaning sex workers and pushing people underground. Yeah. Yeah. So. Rescue industry. It sounds like something for pets, right? <laughs> <laughs> Rescue shelter. Um, well, it's sorry, like, yeah. um, like a form of life saviorism that's, right. like, goes all the way back to basically like before the chinese exclusion act and it was like one of the things that enabled you know like racist immigration and deportation policies like there would be these like white women who would go to chinatown and just kidnap women (laughs) from china like like chinese women and like teach them christian values and then like lock them up yeah (laughs) like they were in like would force them to live in these um like like girls like safe houses but like the windows were barred from the (laughs) inside so like the girls couldn't escape and then after they like learn sufficient like christian morals they would like just foist them onto some random Chinese dude and push them out and, like, make them move back to China. Like, that was the whole point of it. And this is a pattern, right? And we see this in history over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And, like, a lot of these anti-trafficking work, like, what you're talking about with safe houses happens in Cambodia. It happens, you know, like, in in Thailand. Like, there was four sex workers who actually, like, committed suicide trying to jump from the roof of one of these things because they weren't allowed cell phone access to talk to their own kids uh, because they were, you know, it said that that they would be contacted by their pimps, you know. And so, you know, this is definitely still, you know, this is a thing that is historic and it, and it keeps happening. The Magdalene Laundries in Ireland. Oh, yeah. I, uh, saw, I saw that movie, The Magdalene Sisters. It's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> it's like nuns who have, yeah. there's like piles of bodies, like 150 or something, oh. like thousand bodies that are like, like buried in parts of Ireland where these women that were like, you know, fallen women were forced to do laundry work by nuns and like horribly abused and mistreated. And like if they had a baby or something, the baby would just be tossed away like garbage. And, you know, this is like a long history of people saving sex workers. And by saving, you know, it's actually like the worst types of abuse. Mm -hmm. And and the nuns, I mean, uh, like if the movie's accurate, uh, profited off that work. It was was like prison labor, free labor. And that's 
that still exists. So that organization that used to be run by nuns still exists now as Ruhama, which is like their equivalent of an anti-traffic organization in Ireland. And we have our equivalents in the U.S. And they're still getting paid the most money from the state to do services for sex workers while sex workers are like denied any form of actual like funding and are the ones actually giving mutual aid to each other. So this structure is so old and we've been fighting it for hundreds of years, you know, and we're still in it. And, you know, maybe one day we can actually overthrow this thing that is so much better funded and more powerful than mm-hmm. than than we are yeah right uh in the um well in, in that discussion about decriminalization something i found really interesting was the was the kind of tension between decriminalization versus legalization because you talked about how legalization could uh lead to even more commodification of sex and and basically like corporatize the whole thing where you have like chain brothels or something doing that also uh, could you talk more about that i found that very interesting i wouldn't use the word commodification because that's often used by the other side i think uh, commodification okay. ha- of sex happens the most in like advertisements for you know cars <laughs> and <laughs> like you know modeling of any kind and you know actually like instagram you know <laughs> but um i <laughs> think true. this is more about like an issue of like uh two you have a two-tiered kind of system that happens when um when you use legalization as a method what you basically do is you introduce the state as a pimp, right, or quote-unquote. And what happens is that people who are able to afford licenses um, and follow those regulations will have, like, one form of, like, legalized, like, brothels that um, in places like Nevada, for example, or even Amsterdam, like, are, like, prohibitively expensive and then end up being monopolized the way that a lot of things in the formal economy are. Like, you have the sort of, like, Walmartization of everything happening where, like, owners try to squeeze as much profit out of workers as possible. So sex workers become actually, like, abused in the formal sector. And it is that abuse that actually leads people into sex work to begin with, right? Like, a lot of people could be working in Walmart, could be working, like, low-wage jobs where they choose sex work because it is less abusive working in the informal sector and better paid than the alternatives that are out there and like in the formal sector, right? And so like oftentimes like under legalization, you have the same thing. You have people who are migrants who can't afford, you know, the the licenses or can't, you know, aren't citizens so they aren't even allowed to have those licenses just working illegally as before right outside the streets where there's actual legal establishments happening. And so we want decrim because it's we want to say, hey, what people do with their bodies, that's their own business. <laughs> and so long as nobody is controlling like the and managing the time or con- like taking away the profits of another person, then let those people continue to do that work in the informal sector the way that it has been done for the longest time. And that is actually the way in which um, people's rights are most respected. Um, you also talked about how well, if you look at like a big hotel chain, for example, like the way they um, fail to adequately uh, pay their workers leads them into sex work. Um, that kind of creates this idea that sex work is something of a last resort of people. Is there some kind of tension between that where you're trying to uh, uphold the dignity of sex work? But on the other hand, there's this idea that in an ideal world, there would be less of it because people would just be, uh, you know, in an office job or whatever, something like that. Do you want to answer this? I don't I don't know if I quite understand the question. If if sex work is the last resort work or is, what is the... Because uh, if there is this idea that um, like if, if society were better structured so that people were paid more, mm-hmm. then they wouldn't have to do it. I mm-hmm. think there is this idea, even from like mm-hmm. feminists and progressives, there is that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, like is, do you run into that difficulty where we're trying to advocate for sex work, but uh, you run into those types of arguments? Not from the more yeah. predictable like 
right-wing social conservatives, but also from the left? Um, I feel like in the ideal world, we're not paid more, but we don't need money to <laughs> negotiate <laughs> and live with each other. And exactly. We know where our food comes from because we're kind of managing it ourselves, and um, life is not like not like more work and money and stuff. It's less of it. Mm. Yeah, certainly there's like a precedent for like organizing across sectors. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, go no. ahead. I think I was done. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, like in Cambodia, like garment workers and sex workers organized together because they were like, oh, the conditions in garment work are so bad. So people are doing sex work and then people are being saved from sex work by being put into sweatshops where they're being reeducated to do even lower paid <laughs> like yeah. garment work, which is supposed to save them, even though they came from garment work to begin with. Right? <laughs> and so that cycle, um, which feeds into sort of like a more like more coercive, like global capitalism that wants fast fashion, that wants to like, you know, have things cheap, like made by people abroad who are more exploitable like that is the form of coercion right and i for the people who don't want to do sex work like certainly that is not the work <laughs> that you know like there's a whole system economic system where people are being extracted from and 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 yeah sex work isn't unique as a form of extractive work and for many people it's way better than the other options out there mm -hmm. but yeah like ideally no one would have to work you know yeah, <laughs> like, in a perfect world I gotta say, I used to, when I started dancing, I was working at a theater, and then I started dancing, and working at the theater was minimum wage, and it was way more work, <laughs> and the customers really disrespected me, and then I had to close up by myself and do all this cleaning and then leave, and there was, like, some customers who were harassing the workers, we, we had to get a, uh, we had to, you know, it was just, like, not safe, and I was locking mm -hmm. up by myself, and then, and then I would go to work at the club. And that actually helped me pay my rent and buy food and mm. was safer in some ways that there was like mm. just more like yeah. security and support. And I just thought that was ironic, but I had to tell right. my parents that I was doing the theater. With <laughs> right. yeah. I, I also I like do a lot of freelance art assisting for people. Um, and when I was just kind of like doing that by just word of mouth from other folks, um, I assisted a lot of men, like a lot of white men in like painting murals and stuff like that. <clears throat> and I got more harassed by some of those men than my own clients in dungeon spaces because no. we talk about consent and, and mm -hmm. stuff like that in, in BDSM. And even in massage work, I, I like it was almost like I knew what I was getting paid for. Um, but like when I was freelance assisting other people, I didn't get paid to be groped or to be uh, talked to in a particular way. And because it was like freelance, there's no rights <laughs> as a oh, freelancer. Yeah, yeah. So it was like I just had to kind of – I don't know. We can talk all about like harassment across the board in every type of industry. But um, yeah, I, I would say that there was times I was harassed more in non-sex related industries and paid less. And <laughs> and it's it was not fun. Um, but yeah, definitely some folks – I've had that argument of other people who aren't from right wing saying like – do you do this because it makes so much money? Do you do this because like all about the money portion? And sometimes it was just because I, like I said, it was like safer. Like even what Lillian said, it was safer. It was more predictable. Like um, it was more consistent. So why do you think it was safer? Do you think it's just because everyone's honest about what's happening? Um, 
Kind of, sort of, but I also, not every place is perfect. I've gotten assaulted before at uh, work. It's okay. And that's like what led me to get more into activism because I wanted to create safer conditions for, for me to be able to go back to work. I haven't worked as a massage worker for a long time. And I want to, like, I liked that work. It was like offering honest, like real compassionate healing to other people on an intimate level that I have not been able to do on any other customer service retail thing or anything I've ever done before. But um, yeah, so again, to create more safer conditions at a workplace, like we all need rights too. sex workers need rights too. The, our clients need rights too. like, I don't know. Yeah. Another thing in relation of how like sex workers relate to the care and maintenance of like other labor forces is like if you look at flushing, like the majority of the clients of the flushing massage workers are like Mexican or Hispanic day laborers. Right. Mm -hmm. And these are people who um, are not being paid a fair wage either. Like it's the border that is like an instrument that separates people um, and makes it so that you don't have to pay the like the reproductive wage of labor. If you want to use like left theory, like instead you don't have a family wage. What you have to do is you have to send the money home. Your family's being raised by someone else, a grandmother or, you know, a wife. And, you know, you're here to work right and your wages will never allow you to maintain a family in this city and you know for people that are here like you know their sexualities are actually being like cut off by the border right and they're not going to start a family here they already have a family right and so in a lot of ways like these are small spaces of care between two groups of people who are economically compelled to neglect their own sexuality and reproductive rights and and urges in order to serve uh, a more powerful elite and and that's what borders do, right? Yeah. And so it's exactly the same thing that happened to like Chinese laborers mm-hmm. in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like a modern day bachelor society. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And like whenever there is that kind of gendered labor, you see sex work appearing side by side, and this is a gendered issue, right? Like whenever mm-hmm. you have militaries, right, and you off you often have women comfort women side by side, and of course these are really big problems. If people are being forced into sex work in any form, whether that is through comfort women, you know, those are the comfort stations, or like anywhere where someone is forced to have sex against their will, that is rape and that is violence and that is not okay. Um, but on the other hand, like you also see like military encampments where the, the U.S. are, you know, located in different countries and people are, are are angry that this is a form of imperialism because there's prostitution around those camps. But when you talk to like the sex workers working there and we've like spoken with like sex workers at the Philippines, sex workers collective or other groups are like, yeah, there's not much money to be made here. Like here are these foreigners here bringing in money, whether it's tourism in Bangkok or whether it's these like military stations or even the UN, you know, mm-hmm. here's, you know, they're in here. They they come from another country. They come with their power and their money. We're going to grab some of it. You know? <laughs> yeah. And like the bigger issue isn't so much, oh, these, like, these aren't people that are forced to necessarily do this. You know, they're people that are forced by poverty and global inequality and where they see this is like, unfortunately, like where the opportunity is. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. like instead of like rewarding or like celebrating these women that are like upholding entire families and like. So much like like, entire nations are being upheld by this underground economy of sexual labor instead of actually celebrating these women or just giving them equal recognition and Mm -hmm. rights for what they're doing in actual like nation building. um, We're instead relegating these people to the like edges of society. Right. Mm -hmm. And And shaming them. That's basically what happened in Korea. Yeah. um, Because like those uh, comfort women stations, they um, like that that were established by like the Japanese Imperial Army, they just got transferred to 
the U.S. like military encampments in Korea, and like from like from the fifties to the seventies, like uh, it was considered um, like your civic duty, you know, to like uh, recruit and uh, maintain like this huge population of sex workers to uh, service the U.S. military and to um, uh, get get more. Um, like uh get more clients than japan it was like a competition right it's like uh the women um and maybe like oxford knows some of this history too but it was like they basically just had their bodies to sell and like nothing else Mm -hmm. so people were like you know selling sex cutting their hair and just like selling that and that uh you know that saved the economy, yeah. <laughs> and, but like after after you know they ha- they did that for you know that amount of time and the uh, economy started to recover. Those women were still shamed. They mm-hmm. were still they they weren't revered. You know, mm-hmm. they were just like, oh, you've been a sex worker, like gross yeah. or whatever. Yeah, and, and that's it's like the yeah. great injustice. I yeah, think. yeah. Like- mm-hmm. Um. Kate, you also talked about the meeting, um, just how sex workers can organize in, into like collectives. Um, so how, how, how does that work? Um, a lot of sex workers work collectively. One of the models that we like is like the New Zealand model for like decrim. You mentioned decrim versus legalization. Um, we are in support of like the New Zealand model because it encourages collective like working. So their law basically states that if there's four or fewer sex workers working together um, and, you know, like feasibly that wouldn't necessarily require like a management person, then that's just considered a collective and there's no like other sorts of like like certification legal like issues kind of related to how it's regulated. However, if there's more than four sex workers or if there's anyone who is controlling the time or money of another worker, then that person needs to have an operator's license, right? Which is like um, basically like a pimping certificate, you know, <laughs> where the government can like like manage that because that's where the source of the expectation is, right? So um, what that has done is it's encouraged a lot of sex workers to leave bad workplaces because they didn't have to work for them anymore and they could just work for themselves or they can work with other people. And I think that's generally that independent model is the best thing for people. It could be conducted more like a small business, more like, you know, informal sector labor. And and um, where it gets so big, like where you require someone as management, then that person needs to be the one audited, right? Not the sex workers. And that person doesn't have to be criminalized, like in the Nordic model, you know. Um, you just have to really make sure that what they're doing is like acting as a service or a support and assistant to the sex workers and not, you know, somebody who's taking over or exploiting. And so we encourage that model because we think not only for sex workers, but like collectivization in general and like of like worker ownership of like the profits of their labor is part of a bigger strategy. And in some ways, sex workers are leading that labor movement, right? Like mm-hmm. have been doing this collectivization for many, many years and have have good things to show about how sex workers can, you know, build um through that model including cooperative banks built by these giant unions in india right that have like pulled so many women and their children out of poverty to start new businesses elsewhere like you know through the process of like putting funds together and being very organized about how they like deal with each other and their businesses have you ever seen the documentary live nude girls unite is it on Netflix? Is that about? Uh, it used to be. I don't know if it's Lusty still Lady. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, I haven't. Yeah. What do you think about it? Uh, well, if I remember correctly, but I saw this more than ten years ago. Um, it's chronicling short 
period of time in a strip club called the Lust Lusty Lady in San Francisco, um, and how some of the workers there, the dancers, decided to form a union so that they could be employees instead of independent contractors, which means they're paid an hourly wage, guaranteed income instead of working for tips. Uh, and it succeeded. Like they, they did that. Um, but in some ways it ruined the working model because, uh, dancers sort of, in some ways they stopped dancing because they knew they were getting paid oh. per hour mm-hmm. or the ones who were working more weren't making more mm-hmm. than the ones who were making. Uh, and and this is where some of our assumptions about formal labor being inherently better than informal labor are perhaps incorrect, right? Like here's like our idea is that wage labor is going to be better than like stripper work, right? <laughs> or people, um, and again, and maybe it is for like a lot of people, right? But like also like some people are making more money as strippers when they don't have to be paid a wage where the boss gets everything because wages are actually a matter of a kind of extraction too, right? Bosses pay, they, they are paid Paid by the by the difference between how much you know they pay you and how much the customer pays the, the operation, right? And so even though minimum wage is important to have for these big you know operations, like as a base, like it's not necessarily like less extractive. Like formal work is not necessarily more like like better for people than informal work, right? I would, I would hear like uh, friends of mine who are dancers say that they wanted to stop dancing to bartend because bartenders would always walk out with. Um, because they were paid hourly. Um, so they were like, I should go and get like, go to bartending school or something instead of this. So when the nights are slow, I can definitely walk out with some money. So I didn't know if, so it's interesting to see in the same house or club that, that there are like former laborers, you know, formal laborers. And then there's informal laborers. Like why can't sex workers just be included? I mean, but what you're saying, like, I don't know, where how that's going to fit in if sex workers even want that like right. all sex workers want that but, I but aren't bartenders paid by, by tips t- they are too some of them are paid hourly though oh, okay yeah oh, but uh, do they get tip. like a higher hourly wage maybe potentially yeah. maybe it depends i've worked at bars before where some bartenders depending on how long you have bartended or worked in restaurants get paid more People lie all the time. So I'm like, oh, you know, since I was like four or something. Like, <laughs> I grew up in restaurants or something. I don't know. But mm-hmm. there's also like a hybrid model of like, so the Fetish Fortress um, dungeon in New York City um, that I worked at like briefly um, years ago uh, has a wage guarantee and is the only dungeon in the city with like a weekly wage guarantee. If you put in this number of hours, you're definitely going to make a minimum of this much, but you're still kind of independent contractor. So most people actually end up making much more than that. They promise, I think, 500 a week as a base rate as long as you're there for this number of hours. But like your expectation is you're going to be making a lot more. And that might be like a good kind of way of like navigating that because mm-hmm. like in a lot of ways, like pe- the, the benefits of independent contracting is that you can actually, like you should be making more, you know, yeah, <laughs> like in strippers tend to more make. more power, but also more responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not, the club is not a higher up, but rather an equal who you have a contract with mm-hmm. that you're negotiating. Whereas if the club were the employer and you're the employee, you work for them, you turn over all your money to them and just get paid your wage. Exactly. And like, that's pretty exploitative in and of itself too, but you still want a minimum guarantee. Like, so the problem arises when like you're putting in 40 hours and you're not getting like, you know, like anything because the club hasn't promoted, for example, well enough or like these other, you know, elements that might make you feel like 
you know, might make you less earn less than someone working on salary or wage salary. In which case, like maybe there can be a hybrid model where clubs guarantee a certain minimum, but you should still be able to earn more than that um, as a contractor. Um, so, Lillian, you said you had like mixed feelings about sex work and um, organizing. Do you want to like go into that briefly? Yeah, and I think we've talked about it a little bit. I mean, it, it uh, of course, is complicated, but it's like when we talk about sex work or activism, we often flatten what these things mean, and we have to put them in a nutshell so that we can communicate, have a conversation, right? But and then I just find that it, in different moods at different points in time, I might oscillate towards feeling more for it or more against it. Uh, I don't know if I should really get. It. But I don't know if you, either of you, want to expand on that about about flattening. Yeah, about f- sex work. Mm-hmm. Flattening it into. Well, right now we're talking about the working aspects of it, expanding the notion of work, and when we talk about activism, we're in that rhetoric of like we have to. It's a certain type of work that we have to deliver a certain way, and I feel like right. us as human beings are these layer, you know. Yeah, I think that often we talk a lot when we talk about sex work, we like focus on like what kind of conditions do we want in a workplace? Like what kind of worker do I want to be? And there's like, I'm just going to use the context of like BDSM. There's folks that are like, I'm a pro dom or I'm a lifestyle dom. And then like people are like, what's the difference? Like Mm -hmm. pro indicates that you do it for a job. Like you get paid to do it. There's a monetary exchange or you're in school for it. Or there's even like workshops and stuff for it. Um, And then a lifestyle person is kind of like a sub, like a bottom, like someone who just like receives all of it, doesn't ever get paid, maybe pays for tools and equipment and stuff like that. So there's people that are like lifestyle sex people, (laughs) sex worker or like lifestyle sexers. I don't know what to say. I don't even. So they're sex workers, but they pay to others to that or like they're adjacent to it or in the realm of sex work, but they're not the people. They're not the providers. They're not the workers. They're not the strippers that they're not the the escorts they're not they're just on they're in the community but they're not doing the work so they're almost like clients then yeah but i also don't want to flatten them by calling them just clients so like like, it could be the bartenders oh okay so they're like part of the scene kind of yeah it could be their irl persona and not a work persona right um there's people yeah so i don't want to flatten the whole scene i guess by just calling it just like just talking about the workers because even before being an adult and um, getting paid to do this i was like a kid who was adjacent to like kink things or something like that like getting piercings and like getting temporary tattoos and like thinking like this is cool one day i'll be a part of this or but i was already in it you know yeah. um <laughs> or something like that we're like y'all are in it because y'all were having this conversation like you know so um yeah i don't want to flatten uh, yeah, it i also work. relate to what you were saying about you were saying something about how you felt like hypocritical it was in terms of the asian yeah uh, the m- playing into my asian identity to monetize all of yeah and i felt like a hypocrite when i was like oh i'm gonna clock in right now and i'm super capitalist i'm gonna make as much money as possible in this amount of hours and not even think about the human aspects of the customer like sometimes i was in that mode it's like and i was counting the hours and the money and then i could clock out and take off the costume and then be like, okay, now I'm an anarchist. <laughs> Get them, you know, down with the system. I don't care about money, right? Like, and then I yeah. live and present myself that way. But it was the way I could compart the way I compartmentalize myself as a person. I took 
the dancer's money and funded an anarchist lifestyle, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. So it's like I, I, <laughs> right, yeah. I, I feel like I, I see that sometimes. I don't know if I'm for or against it. I, as a human being, I'm just trying to get along. You know, I'm trying yeah. to live and. Sex workers often have to like embody all these contradictions in society, yeah, right? Like right. we're like the gap with a where marriage doesn't, you know, monogamy as like an institution doesn't quite work, you know, and we're like filling in that gap, right? The society should be working smoothly where no one has to do sex work if they didn't have to. And many of us are like socialist anarchists at heart, but like, hey, we, you know, it doesn't quite work out that way. And so we embody those contradictions and we use this to survive while like trying to achieve other goals. Like same, mm-hmm. like myself, I know so many sex workers who are like socialists, activists, you know, um, who are artists, who are people trying to make change in the world because they need to see a better world in the world in which they're doing sex work in, right? Mm -hmm. And so they have to embody the contradictions with like what is now and what they want to see. And like that also is like, you know, the institution of sex work is that hypocrisy. It's the hypocrisy between like like sexual propriety and like people's actual sexual urges, right? And and I think, you know – being a sex worker means having to embody all of these conflicts in society, racial, class, gender, um, yeah. in one person. And it's like that is what makes organizing hard too because I think there's so many like very traumatized people in the sex worker community trying to work together and that like comes up in the organizing spaces and mm-hmm. like it's – we're being tasked with a lot, you know, right. um, and then being told that this is somehow one like identity, right? <laughs> there's something you said yeah. earlier that I, w- I wanted to respond to. Um which, and it has to do with the organizing in the police state and the Asian American model minority. Um, it's like recently, I think it's pretty recent. Kern Kim, you know of him? Uh, he was recently released from prison. When I say recently, I guess of the past few years. Uh, he's Korean American from LA, I think. And his case was what that movie Better Luck Tomorrow was based oh, on. Okay. Oh, really? um, yeah. yeah, but he's and in his since he was released, he's been his journey to reenter society. He's like gotten back into tech. He was looking for jobs and I think he was a co founder of a video game company, but because he's a former felon, um I think he was told that if he's in the company, they're not gonna get any deals and and he just found it so hard to reenter society while being an Asian American former felon. And there's something about the Asian American community that doesn't want to talk about um, have a past in prison or prison mm-hmm. li- or like mm-hmm. having committed crimes. It's it's a sort of soil, like soiled, uh, something. You know, there's a stigma to it. Um, like he said, he was talking to his father and his father had a problem of him identifying with other prisoners or former criminals. And like, why would you want to be like, like, why do you talk about them? And he just had this realization that he actually found his, like he realized himself and felt empowered when he was in prison and had that community. And he wasn't finding that acceptance in the Asian American community. And he thought, I can't be around API anymore and he's just like so he's like gone back to working with prisoners and he's doing prison reform he just uh curated an art show with prisoners like current and former prisoners that my my cousin is a part of because he's in a facility in San Diego or might be closer to Mexico border now but anyways um yeah I think he's doing a lot of 
or I think the group is called API Rise,、mm. and they help with、uh, Asian Americans who or Asians who、uh, have left prison and are trying to and need resources and guidance to reenter society. Oh, that's awesome! Like, I really want to connect with them. Like, I think they're they might be LA based, but I don't know if they have groups out here to meet、cool. to. All right, that's a common critique, though, of just criminal justice, right? You. Uh, you stigmatize the the prisoners, don't let them re-enter society, and then you and then they might even just stay in the crime world. Like, well, what happened? Like, why didn't they want to join、yeah. us? Like, you didn't you wouldn't hire them, you wouldn't like socialize with them.、Right. So, But, what do you expect? Are you saying there's、um, unique issues that API、uh, former prisoners face? Yeah. yeah. Like, what are、like、what they, are they? It they find it much harder to talk about, or and when they bring、mm. it up, it they lose community instead of being able to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I Form think relationships. This is something we、It's、talked like, about. A- yeah, a lot. Like, um, with the APA task force, or with like, um, within like New York State, um, specifically around the invisibilization of people that are shamed in our communities. So one of the things that like Yulin Yo and Ron Kim want to work on, and like we're highlighting last year in their platform, was like talking about mental health issues、mm-hmm. in the Asian American community, talking about like you know Hep C and like、um, HIV AIDS, and like talking about like LGBTQ issues, and like also talking about sex work. Like、um, there's definitely a problem in which sometimes in our community we really bury. People that we feel ashamed of, and it, like the strategy for success in this model minority kind of way of like navigating like、um, society is like you know like aim for success by being respectable and like hide everything else and don't even you know don't lose face, don't tell anyone that this other stuff is happening under the surface, right? And that is really painful for people who don't fit. Into that model minority myth, and of course, it's a myth because a lot of people don't fit into that. Like in in New York State,、um, we have the highest percentage of undocumented people, actually, and we don't know that. Like, we don't talk about that as an APA community. We also have the highest percentage of like poor people, people under the like extreme poverty line, especially senior citizens that we see like collecting bottles to survive, right? And yet, we have the lowest rates of people going around actually co- collecting the benefits that they're legally entitled to, right? And so. What like this plays into this bigger picture of how we handle like shame、um, in like I wouldn't say all API communities. I don't want to generalize, but certainly in like like a lot of East Asian and like、yeah. communities. Like, do you think it's um because of like the way that Asians have been racialized, or do you feel like it's more like a cultural issue, like a more of an endemic cultural issue, or like I don't know. I do think it's hard for Asian Americans to organize or find a commonality. Like they're seen as one race here in America, but like maybe it's easier when they're organizing in Asia, where they're actually connecting with each other, not race based, but、mm. on a common history or socioeconomic class, right?、Mm-hmm. Like in Thailand, a Thai person and a Chinese Thai person is. They somehow have different, right? Right.、Um, so it's like when we relate to each other as Asians, we still don't necessarily share a common history that goes beyond coming to America, right?、Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, st- I, I think, as 
an ethnic group or as a racial category, we're still working that out and how we right, relate right. to each other. And our representation in the media has also to do with that. Mm-hmm. Right, right. goes back to that. Which is like so, one thing that is nice about Hustlers is that it isn't like the same model minority myth, you know, that there is like a portrayal of an Asian sex worker at all. Like is is like it's progressive. It's, it's you know. Start, it's, it's one mm-hmm. starting point. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I think we just have a few minutes left. Um, one question I want to ask is, so going off of what we just said, in, it's one thing to decriminalize something. But is there also a concurrent like destigmatization movement? Yeah, and there, what does that there look needs like? To be right, and so this is like where like countries that have this Nordic model. We we were uh, a group of us from Red Canary Song went to Sweden where they had practiced you know twenty years of this law that like criminalized the buying of sex. Um, you know, and the and any sort of pimping, but like you know, try to say that they were more like benign and like good to sex workers by not criminalizing sex work itself. And the results of this kind of like you know policy is that a lot of sex workers didn't stop doing sex work; they were just pushed further underground. And then you know, mothers lost custody to their children, and um, they had to work in more dangerous locations because clients were afraid of being arrested. Um, and so people have gotten killed. You know, in other countries that have adopted this model, like France or Ireland, like violence rates have gone up like people have been forced out of Paris to work you know in like forests um, where like trans like sex workers has gotten murdered in this past year um, you know, this this is kind of um, what happens when you introduce a law that is like partial, that doesn't actually remove stigma. When you say that like buying of sex is, is still illegal, you're you're actually increasing stigma. So studies in Sweden showed that since the passing of the Swedish law, stigma against sex workers increased, not decreased. And even though when it was passed, people were very 50-50 around whether they should adopt it or not, now people are more in favor than ever. And now people are leaning towards wanting to have full criminalization of sex work. So after 20 years of this, people have become more and more whorephobic, right? Mm-hmm. And similarly with this movie, I think this kind of closes the, the, the gap in a bit. Like, when this movie is not actually, like, destigmatizing sex work, but instead puts sex work on the bottom of a hierarchy of, like, crimes, and when you treat clients as, like, criminals, like, that people should feel, like, good revenge almost out of, like, seeing them beaten up, seeing them, like, you know, losing money. Like, what you're doing is you're actually replicating parts of the sort of Nordic model mentality, where you actually see the work itself as being somehow like negative and harmful to women and you want to see the clients punished instead of seeing them as full human beings alongside the workers themselves and so what you're actually doing is you're falling to this dangerous like nordic model trap of that is actually more harmful to sex workers as you see it's you know implementation in other countries that have done it so this is where like we have to be really critical from like a policy perspective of like how this movie fits into our larger goals it really doesn't if anything it fits into more conversations around nordic model than it does around decrim okay Uh, so walk me through so they decriminalize sex work uh in sweden in sweden in 20 they, years ago you they said. Pa- they partially criminalize sex work so they they criminalize the the buying of sex Wait, but so, they're not but, criminalizing well, but no, no, what, what they did like 20 before. years ago so it wasn't okay their starting point was it wasn't criminal yes uh then they slightly criminalized it the 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 buying of client sex client side work. okay the buying of sex and that 
increase the stigma, you're saying? Yes. I think they were partially criminalized before. I'm not sure exactly what the laws were. I think they, I think buying and selling might have been criminalized before, but I don't have, I don't, I'm not completely sure. They might have had the UK model where, um, like sex work is uh itself is not is not criminalized but like you know pimping and like buying right, okay. pimping is criminalized but buying wasn't i think that's probably i think uk um you know canada before the 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 nordic model went to canada and sweden had a similar thing where only um like pimping and like elements around sex work is criminalized but buying and selling weren't and so what they did is they introduced the criminalization of buying right okay so, so it's like it a mix message and then people kind of default to their more judgment judgmental ways when there's even some element of criminalization in there exactly it promotes stigma right right so yeah you can't you can't just be like we're going to protect the sex workers because we're not going to put them in trouble for doing it but uh anyone who buys it we're going to throw them in jail we're going to like uh shame them then it's like people are like what the fuck am i supposed to think right Right. (laughs) as a society lillian you had a comment uh yeah, but I, I kind of want you to finish here. Oh, no, I'm uh, finished. <laughs> um, I just wanted to tell you about a thing that happened to me near here and w- wondering what you all think of it. it a uh, case of street harassment. It was close to here is Midtown. And this a white woman started following me and shouting. And she was saying, uh, Asian women are the number one traffic people in the world because they're so fucking stupid. <sighs> Or just like randomly or just said that. Yeah, I just or saw me like, walk yeah. on the sidewalk and oh just started following. That's not so different from like, what like nonprofits faster. preach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we have like the training manuals of like Sanctuary for Families and Polaris, these like multi-million dollar organizations. They train the police on very cultural factors of trafficking and they aim at Asian massage parlors by saying Asians are trafficked because we are docile, right, because right, our cultures right. like invite us to be more collectively oriented and not individualistic. And so nobody is like able to stand up for themselves. They basically basically reduce the the bigger picture of like labor and economics to one that can allow the police to only target Asians even though there's so many other people in this industry and it makes it in, it's literally formulating like racism around sex work right oh, yeah. and so oh i just saw a sign that said 5 minutes yeah. okay yeah. all right we got 5 minutes um, yeah uh, so yeah players is uh Kate, you told me it's some kind of what? What kind of company are they again? They're like an organization that train like they're a, like they operate a hotline and they are the one of the largest nonprofits that work in the anti trafficking space. Uh, but they can't like do services, um, so they have millions of dollars to sort of give talks, have a hotline, train the police, and then they refer services to other people. So, for example, we've had someone who was referred to us through Swap um, from Polaris, and so we with like zero budget, we've had you know less than six hundred dollars in the budget for a full year have had to deliver services unfunded for free to people that, you know, are not being served by these multi-million dollar organizations that are actually incre- like increasing the criminalization of these people. Yeah. So. Polaris sounds like a like a private security force, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. It just, it's they like, get a lot of money from like, uh, Interpol. I can yeah, see the, the logo water, now. Yeah. It's corny. Stupid. Yeah. They worked with Google to do this like tracking of like data stuff so and mm-hmm. to like enable like more like you know, people to use, like, data as a form of, like, policing and, you know, allegedly to stop trafficking. But, of course, this is is increasing a bigger sort of agenda Mm -hmm. of, like, what the U.S. is pushing towards in terms of its, like, militarization of police and Mm -hmm. the use of technology, right? Right. Yeah. And Um, tighter immigration control. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, so we only have a few minutes left. Left, So uh, to end on a happy note, uh, do you guys have anything like coming up, uh, things you want to promote uh, for our listeners? Uh, yeah, I mean, this was, I uh, enjoyed listening to you guys talk for this episode. So we want you to get 
Uh, Spread the a, word on things. We have a fundraiser coming up on November 2nd at Lot 45 in Bushwick. It's um, Kink Out Events. If you want to follow their page, um, it's at Kink Out Events is all the info. They're raising funds for Red Canary Song. It's going to be really fun. Tons of um, uh, different independent booths, I guess I, we would call it, or just like vendors. It's a bunch of people who are in the community of sex work um, who are showcasing their talents. I'm going to be doing live embroidery there. Um, yeah, so people can bring their own clothing items because it's getting cold. You can have a in jacket embroidered by me. I have this like one of those big machines that can do it on the spot in like 15 minutes. So yeah, come get a butt plug on your, on your <laughs> beanie or a red canary for, for some or an actual red canary logo. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put all these links in our show notes if uh, the listeners, you couldn't quite catch uh, the the name for that. So don't worry about that. Cool. Anybody else? Um, we have a vigil coming up too, the third uh, vigil for Songyang. Oh, yeah. it, it'll be on November 30th. Um, uh, it'll be like around 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Um, in uh, Flushing and hope people will come out. Yeah, yeah, for What's sure. What's the address of? Um, it'll be right on 40th Road where the Long Island Railroad is and where Songyang had been working. Cool. Can we find more info on that on Red Canary's page? Uh, yeah, it'll okay. be on our website and Twitter. Cool. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much thank for joining you. us. This, is, yeah, this was very you. enlightening and yeah, had a lot of fun. You. Hopefully, uh, you guys did too, and so did our listeners. Yeah, thanks so, for yeah, having us. Yeah, come back anytime you want. Okay. <laughs> yeah, cool. Thank All right. you. So, thank uh, Kate, uh, Gia, and Lillian, thank you so much. Uh, Red Canary Song joined us for this episode. So, this is Oxford and Diana. We're signing off. All right. See everyone next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.